welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week, we are going to be talking about Robert Altman's classic movie, Nashville, in honor of the upcoming presidential election. I propose this movie as a sort of quasi-election episode, even though it's not explicitly about politics, uh, because to my mind, it's sort of the most American film I've ever seen, and I've been thinking about it as the election began taking up the consciousness of everyone in the world. The basic sort of setup of this film is that it takes place in Nashville in 1975-1976, and it follows a pretty huge number of characters over the course of several days. So there's not a really strong plot per se. This is like most Altman movies, it's a big ensemble, but you get a look into all these different people's lives and they are all really closely interconnected and it's all about the music scene in Nashville. And there is also a sort of odd political subplot about this guy who's running for president in the replacement party, which is a sort of weird third party thing. He never appears on the screen, but you do have all this sort of stuff about America going on underneath the surface. It's really interesting, which we will talk about later. So... Uh, if you have not seen this movie, you can definitely listen to this podcast. We are going to talk about stuff that happens, but I wouldn't worry too much about that. There is some stuff at the end that we will spoil, but we'll warn you before we get there. Um, but obviously, we both recommend this movie really highly, so I do recommend watching it. I guess I'll start just by saying that I saw this movie a couple years ago at a screening at MoMA. Um, it was really amazing to see it in a movie theater with a huge screen because there are a bunch of musical numbers. Having just watched it on my computer, I still thought they were really effective, but it was really amazing to see it in a cinema like that. And just the sort of collective experience of seeing it with a packed audience, which is unusual for a movie that came out in 1975. But Gab just saw this for the first time, so I was curious about what your sort of response to it was. Well, I've only ever seen one other Altman movie, which was Gosford Park, and it's really interesting to see those two specifically, I think, because you can definitely see the ways they overlap. They both follow these really large casts of quite realistic characters having very individual lives, and it doesn't really have... I mean, Gosford Park has more of a traditional plot structure because it's kind of a murdery kind of situation, but there's a lot of kind of meandering and you can't really predict what's going to happen apart from the overall structure of them all working towards this uh, political benefit concert. Um, but the fact that that's the only similarity was just really impressive to me because it is so perfectly set in a very specific place and time. And it just, it's so realistic. Like you can tell that a lot of the people in the film are just, you know, they're just people who live in Nashville. Like you can tell it's quote unquote real extras rather than people kind of wearing costumes. And there's a lot of business in the Nashville music scene that seems like they must have cast people just who were singing in local bars like that. And the fact that that is so incredibly specific and also Gosford Park is so incredibly specific to that kind of period of time in British history. It just, he clearly has a lot of insight. Um, I think we're going to talk about this a bit a bit later, but it's like a lot of it's um, improvised, the, uh, the dialogue from the characters, which kind of adds that extra level of reality because they don't speak in dialogue as such a lot of it's kind of natural speech yeah i agree with that um and i think part of what adds part of the sort of uh novelty value watching this 40 years later is that this is a cultural aspect of the 70s that did not get depicted a lot or really at all um so i think we were talking about this um before we recorded about 
the sort of images that we have of the of 70s pop culture and music specifically glam rock or rock and roll and like this is not that at all and obviously this was when this was made it was a contemporary film like it wasn't a period piece and us watching it now not having been alive at the time it's a very different experience but it does feel just very specific and real and like not glamorous it's so uncool like (laughs) Like, there is not there's like one character in the whole film that's cool who is um tom who's a member of this kind of peter paul and mary rock trio compared to most of the country artists but it's just like it's about the country music scene which at that period was not the coolest and they even kind of point this out towards the beginning because the political fixer who's organizing this campaign concert is sort of saying oh you know for tennessee we're not going to hire a bunch of hollywood actors to do our celebrity endorsements because people here don't think they're real they want country stars because that's more relatable because they're not seen as eccentrics and although there's so many musical numbers. There's not like a lot of razzmatazz, you know, there are people standing on a stage and delivering a song. Sometimes not like with that great a voice because it's so naturalistic, but it's <laughs> it's very uncool and people are wearing dweeby outfits because yes. it's the 70s and it's Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. The, the clothes and the hair are really deliciously oh, they're not so great. fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> It did not age well in that respect. I mean, it aged great. It looks, it's amazing. But in terms of like... Wonderful snapshot from an era of bad fabric choices and very rigidly hairsprayed hair slash hippie hair that didn't look good at all. (laughs) Oh my God. Beautiful. So I think the way we're going to do this is to basically go through some of the most interesting or most central characters. There are so many we could not possibly get into all of them, but there are some that are kind of standouts or have a lot of impact on the plot specifically that we wanted to talk about. Um, I think the first one is a journalist from the BBC who comes to Nashville to do a sort of radio documentary about Nashville. She is played by Geraldine Chaplin, who is amazing. And this character is really interesting to me because she in some ways serves as an audience surrogate. Like she's the person coming in and discovering things about this place. But she's so clueless that that doesn't actually work. Yeah, she's like, definitely not. She's not like an everyman character. She's no. so eccentric. Like the kind of the way they portray her is very entertaining to me as someone who's obviously absorbed a great deal of BBC media over the years because <laughs> they don't. She so she's a BBC radio documentary journalist and she's there by herself to essentially make a documentary in any way she likes about the Nashville music scene, and. The film isn't like, like most Hollywood depictions of BBC journalists are relatively serious. It's like you've either got someone who's very serious documentary filmmaker or like investigative journalist or something. And she is realistic, but she's realistic of a very kind of dorky kind of BBC. So she's doing these like very silly, like poetic David Attenborough style voiceovers in the documentary. And because you see her recording them live instead of writing them down, she's just like narrating stuff in this very whimsical fashion and she's also really racist and classist yes but it's so it's also like a really entertaining depiction of that those opinions because she's not she's quite likable and strange and eccentric but also just super racist so like the introductory scene she has it begins in a recording studio where there's um this very famous country star called haven hamilton who is recording this very pompous historical song about how great america is and in the recording studio next door there's a gospel choir just recording a gospel track and they just look like they're having a lot more fun (laughs) and she's kind of going between these two recording studios 
and she's just making all these dodgy comments about the choir because she's just clueless and she's extremely posh and later in the in the movie she's talking to the car driver who's driving one of the bands around and tells him that she makes a habit of not gossiping with the servants and she's just like you're such a snob and her voice is cut glass posh oh it's so good and that opening scene is such a perfect opening for the movie because you do have these two images and they sort of intercut between them of these two elements of the culture that are coexisting but really don't have anything to do with each other in a sort of fascinating way um that was obviously very typical of the 70s um and that's one of the things i think the movie is getting at without being that explicitly political which i think is one of its great strengths um but the guy who's doing that song haven hamilton is one of the sort of major figures in the film and he is just hilarious he's this very short middle-aged man who wears these terrible terrible suits you will be able to describe them it's a like a 1970s elvis suit it's a bedazzled <laughs> white country and western two-piece with rhinestones on it and they're called nudie suits because the designer was a guy whose name was shortened to nudie there was a period when a lot of people were wearing these suits they're sort of las vegas outfits or like if you're a really very successful flashy country singer but he wears it like all the time so when he's driving around town he'll be wearing it essentially a stage costume but his persona isn't really flashy he's sort of this mogul like businessman kind of guy the person in charge of this whole scene and he's both laughable but also like no one really wants to get on the wrong side of him not because he's threatening exactly but he just has such social and business power that he's kind of like oh you know you want to you want to respect him. Um, but he's just also a ludicrous person. Like at some point someone's like, don't ever mention his height to him because like, <laughs> it's not, it's not a good idea. And he has this hair. that's like two tone that I think you're supposed to think is a toupee. Although the actor is not bald. And the fact that it opens with him singing this like very boring song about the greatness of America and it's supposed to take place again like the year before the bicentennial. So um, it's like right after the Vietnam oh. War and he's singing his kind of the main <laughs> lyric of this song is we must have done something right or something. It's like it's all about how like America must be fine because like they've done all this really impressive stuff and it's just like well basically everything in the film is chaos and it's not really right. super critical of America but it's also like you're just out in Vietnam and everything's a mess. So maybe not. Oh my God. So what sort of sets the movie off is this country star arriving um, whom he is sort of closely connected to um, named Barbara Jean. And she is probably along with him, the most famous person in the movie. So she is a young woman uh, country star who again is like super famous. She has massive number of fans and she has been in this, fire like this accident regarding a fire and then was in the hospital there was some kind of mental health issue or possibly some substance issue so she comes back to nashville and she arrives at the airport and there are these again like thousands of people there to greet her but it's quite clear that she's not totally right yet and she's married to this uh older guy who's also her manager who's a total abusive creep and so there's definitely not a main character of this movie and she doesn't have more screen time than any of the other sort of central characters, but she more than anyone, I think kind of drives the story such as it is forward. 
other people in the film are obsessed with her. Like everyone talks about her a lot. Like she is this figure in the city. And I think they do a good job of conveying how that sort of like fame like that works. Like she just is this object of fixation. But I found her one of the most sort of compelling figures in the movie because you do get a really vivid sense of how people in that situation, but also just like women in general, sometimes can have very little control over their own lives. Like she's clearly really miserable and doesn't have the gumption to do anything about it. It's also quite interesting because it's the seventies. So there was not, you know, Lindsay Lohan style internet gossip media, people don't really pick up on the fact that she's a total mess. So they're just like, yeah, she's recovered. And they're all really excited to see her perform. And, you know, anyone who's a fan is probably aware of her husband. And But no one's like, oh, isn't it kind of weird that her husband is like this creepy controlling manager that's 20 years older than her and not that attractive. And, you know, then she's having to like go to hospital because she's collapsed in front of thousands of people. And then there's a really amazing hospital room scene where, her husband is keeping her company and she wants him to turn off the radio because um, it's playing a song by one of her rivals and he forces her to keep the radio on. And then she's clearly very kind of emotionally fragile and not really good at controlling her own life and making decisions. And he just makes her repeat back to him all of the reasons why he's helping her and how he's doing it, which is just so disturbing. Oh. It's such abusive behavior and it's really well done. But she's sort of oh. being controlled through her whole life. Later on, she gets one of the more memorable musical numbers in um, the movie where she does this outdoor concert where she sings one song fine and then kind of starts rambling afterwards and like it kind of seems like the introduction to a country song because she's talking kind of about her childhood and you know oh we used to keep chickens and talking about her parents and stuff but she's just rambling she's clearly got kind of mental health issues or a drug problem or something and you can see her falling apart and it's really upsetting but I feel like that's sort of foreshadowed in the song before because even though it's a really great song I think it's the only song in the movie that's lip-synced because everything else is live and that one you can kind of see from her mouth that she's not singing it live. So it's like they couldn't trust her to perform, but her husband's still making her go on stage in front of hundreds of people. Yeah. But what's fascinating about that scene too is that she she, she wears these long white dresses and pink ribbons in her hair. But yeah, she's like this sort of, sort of like, like Victorian virginal ghost kind of thing. Yeah. She has two songs in that scene and um, you get, I think why she is so famous and why people feel drawn to her when you see her perform, like she has a certain magnetism that most of the other performers that you see over the course of the film don't have. Um, They get people who, who are really interesting to watch and it's not like they're boring or anything, but there's something that's definitely like uniquely compelling about her. But then she goes on this sort of like breakdown ramble where she talks as, I mean, it's difficult to tell what she's actually talking about, but she essentially is talking about the fact that she has been singing professionally for essentially her entire life and that she hasn't had a life basically. And it's kind of a fascinating and upsetting scene because you get the sense that there's just this sort of like, stuff and person inside of her that's like just trying to get out and has never been allowed to develop into anything. And that that's kind of why she is allows herself to be controlled by these other people, but there's just nothing to be done about it. And it is quite upsetting. 
And one of the interesting things about the movie is that she's one of a number of really interesting female characters, including the <laughs> the journalist in a very different way that we were just talking about. Um, and the script was originally written by a woman, which I think probably has something to do with this, although his scripts in all the movies get changed a ton. The one I think has the most direct relationship to her is this young woman named Suleen Gay, who wants to be a country singer, but unfortunately cannot sing at all it's amazing it's like the singing is just astonishingly bad (laughs) it's it's the like effort that actress is gwen wells is like the effort she must have put in to sing that badly unless she's literally that bad but it doesn't seem (laughs) possible she's astonishingly tone deaf and the performance is really great from her as well because she felt very familiar to me at least i think like everyone knows a couple of people who have this kind of combination of vulnerability and confidence so she's um, a diner waitress and she's really socially confident and quite flirty and she also really wants to be a country star and we see her practicing by herself and performing a couple of times in the movie and it's always a huge disaster or at least we know it's a disaster but she doesn't necessarily and she gets what i found to be like the most kind of memorable scene in the movie where she's hired to do a private fundraiser for this politician and it's this kind of arena full of middle-aged men being like dogs at her being really creepy and she kind of shows up in an evening gown and she starts off with one of her own songs that she's written which like all her songs is terrible and it's kind of a nursery rhyme made of sexual innuendos and she of course performs it really badly but the audience loves it because they just want to see a hot woman but then when she tries to do a real cover of one of Barbara Jean's songs they start booing her and the organizer makes her do a strip tease and it's just so upsetting so it's just this woman who's in tears having to take her clothes off in front of all these creepy guys even after that she hasn't really been disabused of the idea that she might still be famous as a country singer and the only person who's really in her corner is her co-worker at the diner who's this middle-aged guy so he doesn't really have a great deal in common with her so he cares for her and he's trying to keep her safe but he doesn't fully know how to have a, that kind of conversation with like a 25 year old woman so he just kind of confronts her and is like look you're a bad singer you can't do this you're gonna get fucked up and she's like you know I'll, you'll see when i'm on stage with barbara jean next week so it's just like oh, oh no. it's devastating <laughs> so awful yeah that stuff i'd seen the movie before obviously and like we got to that scene which i remembered being in the film and i just was like oh my god like, this is awful to watch like just horrible but i think it must be weird to are... film as well i can imagine like oh. 50 guys going to apologize to her afterwards like oh my god. sorry i had to throw stuff at you right <laughs> But I think we both agree that the uh, best person in this movie and the best character in this movie is uh, Lily Tomlin. OMG, Um, Lily Tomlin in this movie is so good. (laughs) uh, Who plays a woman named Linnea, who is married to a sort of executive of some kind who is also involved in that charming evening. He knows the Nashville music scene and I think he's maybe like a manager or something. Yeah, he's a sleaze. And he gets involved with this sort of political campaign thing. But she is a member of the gospel choir, and that's when you first see her. And then she goes home, and you realize that she's married to this guy and also has two children who are deaf. And unlike most of the other people in the film who either are just sort of, like, miserable or actively not very good people, um, 
she really radiates this unbelievable goodness and warmth. Like the way she interacts with her children is really, really wonderful. Um, she's clearly made a huge amount of effort to learn how to interact with them in a meaningful way, which the husband absolutely has not at all. The first scene where she's like home talking to them, it's really great because the husband is just like talking to her. And she's, like, watching the kids and sort of, like, interacting with yeah, them. Yeah, because she's kind of helping like, with their speech therapy. She's clearly... Yeah. I mean, I, I think he must speak in sign language a bit, but we don't really see the father interacting with them in sign language. Yeah. And she's, you know, helping them learn how to speak and stuff and conversation and, like, making sure her son has time to say something so he can practice talking. And the kids are both clearly really happy as well, but the dad just, like, hasn't made that much of an effort. And there's this other character who we're going to talk about in a minute who's also brilliant um, named Tom, who's this sort of sexy very promiscuous rock singer who's also just a dick like he's just clearly a, a, a douchebag right but he is hitting on her he's trying he's like calling her house trying to get her uh, to sleep with him along with like you know about five other women in the movie um yes. <laughs> and like she is extremely strategic about this like when he calls she at first she's trying to turn him down and then later on it seems like she's probably into it but she doesn't actually say anything that can be overheard on the phone and this turns out to be very smart of her because her husband's listening in on the other line and like so you could already tell that he is really insecure about their relationship and quite controlling although we don't really see it in like an abusive context like Barbara Jean and her husband it's just like not a very great relationship you can tell she's interested and as the film progresses she does end up going out to find Tom so they can sleep together the whole process of her the way her emotions are displayed and the way that you can see her going through the decision making process for that is just so great the way she you know she eventually decides that she personally is going to go out to this bar where he's performing and find Tom and hook up with him but there's so much going on internally that you can see on Lily Tomlin's face and Morgan told me before when we were talking about the movie this is Lily Tomlin's first dramatic role before that she was definitely kind of a known as a comedian and I've, I've only seen her in comedies as well so it was really amazing to see her in this movie where I was just this is literally like watching Carol it is like <laughs> like tonally it is Carol and she's so amazing and she's got so much emotional intensity happening on a relatively placid face it's just so great yeah she is amazing in this movie and there's the scene where she kind of like goes to find him it's both really entertaining and really really moving because he it's a sort of like open mic thing but like high-end open mic thing and he goes up to like he and his bandmates who are having all this internal drama because he is also sleeping with the female member yeah, of so the he, band. there's three people in the band the, the other two are married guy. yeah but like they're really famous and it's this nice club they're sort of a, a cut above and so they sing a number and then he sings this song that he wrote and he says something about how it's for someone who like may or may not be here tonight and so there are like three women whom in the audience whom he has slept with and then like one woman who he's been flirting with and they all think that it's about them. and it's also a really great song it was definitely my favorite song in the movie because i actually wasn't really into a lot of the music except kind of in the context of of it being a storytelling tool um but this song is kind of a soft 70s folk rock track that was written yeah. for the movie like most no it was, like, written, no, it was no. written before the movie actually yeah 
Yeah, um, but it, it won an Oscar, and it's kind of the, yeah. it's called "I'm Easy," and it's just such a great song because it's like clearly him talking. He's using it as a tool to get women to sleep with him, and it's also called "I'm Easy," so it's kind of a warning. It's like you can tell that he's just gonna screw you over, right. but at the same time, the lyrics can be interpreted as this like amazing kind of emotional message that he's sending out, like you know, I really have this connection with you, and it's like he doesn't, but they all think he does. <laughs> well. A lot of the music in this film was written by the actors themselves, and Keith Carradine wrote a number of the songs himself and had been writing them while he was doing another Altman movie. Like, he he wrote music, it was a thing that he did. And Robert Altman, I think, saw and heard him working on some of these songs. And he, there was a little interview that we'll put in the show notes that was really interesting where he talked about working on this movie and basically said, like, he'd written this song, it's just like, a love song that he wrote, like, I don't know if it was about someone specific or whatever, and they used it in this movie, and he was like, and then the context changed a lot, because it becomes this, like, manipulative, (laughs) which I thought was great. I was like, wow, it must have really changed the way you thought about that forever. But he's singing this, and one of the people he sleeps with is Opal, the journalist, and she is sitting there with this look on her face, like, oh, this is totally for me, and, like, it definitely isn't. Like, there's no way. There's not, like, there's a answer to this question but like whatever the answer is she's not it like but then lily tomlin is sitting at the back of the room and there are they cut to her face for several long shots during the song and her face is just like oh my god it's so amazing her performance is so good and then they of course wind up sleeping together but his character i think is really interesting because he is this incredibly persuasive musician douchebag, which is not what Keith Carradine is like as a person at all. He won an Oscar for that song, and I watched the clip of him winning it, and it was hilarious. Oh my god, it's so because he's just like, like he's got like floppy hair, and he's so dopey, and he's sort of like a cute dork, right? And right. in the movie, he's got all this kind of very recognizable like physical mannerisms and like his whole persona is this cool rock guy who doesn't really care about anything and he's quite he's not like fully nihilistic but he doesn't really express any emotional openness to anyone and that's part of why people are attracted to him and he genuinely is just a huge asshole to all of these women but they keep coming back and you can understand why even though it's really frustrating it's it's such a it's such a kind of a well like a well-rounded character yeah But what makes him compelling is that you can also tell that he doesn't like himself. And what Keith Carradine said in this little interview was that, like, he was quite young doing this and he really didn't like this guy that he was playing. That... And, like, it made him really uncomfortable because he was like, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> like, this, oh. And he tried to talk to Altman about it, and Altman was just like, it's fine, you're doing fine, keep going. And that when he then watched the movie afterwards, he realized, like, him playing a person he didn't like had translated to a performance where, like, the character was a person who didn't like himself. And I think that really comes across because it wouldn't work if he was just, like, a total asshole who just enjoyed being an asshole it's yeah he's not matthew mcconaughey in dazed and confused kind of assholes and also the fact that he really pursues lily tomlin's character is very telling because the other women he sleeps with it's not difficult it's either like proximity related or they're literally pursuing him whereas with lily tomlin he is you know he's calling her house he really wants to um get her to kind of form some kind of bond with him even if he like immediately sleeps with someone else afterwards and there are these two juxtaposed scenes with him in bed with two women where halfway through the film you see him 
him in bed with his bandmate so that's where you find out that there was a love triangle situation going on with the three of them and she's just professing her love to him over and over again and he's really callously ignoring her and just pretending to be asleep and quits the band without telling her because uh, <laughs> he reveals that he's quit the band on stage which is hilarious but then later on when he's in bed with lily tomlin even though she doesn't really have any delusions about what their relationship actually is they are having like a really tender moment where he sort of asks her how to say i love you in sign language and he she teaches him a few phrases and he's repeating them back and stuff so like he actually does seem to like and respect her in his own way even though like as soon as she starts getting dressed to leave he's calling up another girl yeah it's very sad and it's not like their relationship is particularly romantic in any way but I think you are supposed to think that he does like her. He's just such a limited person that he can't actually have a relationship with anyone. And she is in this marriage that kind of is shitty. And so all she can do is like sleep with this guy who's kind of a piece of shit. You're like, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) And it's definitely the... I don't want to say it's the thing with the most pathos in the movie because the stuff with Barbara Jean is also very upsetting. And obviously that one like strip strip and strip to doesn't even sound like feel like the right word, but like that scene um, with all the gross men is very upsetting also. But in terms of like an actual plot line with multiple characters, like this is the one that has the most weight, I think. And it feels totally very different from the rest of the movie, but it doesn't feel like it's out of place at all. And I think that One of the amazing things about this movie is that all the different strands do have their own kind of distinct tenor, but when you put them all together, the whole thing feels like it belongs in the same film, which is really amazing. The fact that there's so little concrete plot, but the, and that it's so long, but at least when I watch it, it felt long, but it didn't feel like, Oh my God, when is this going to be over? Like it sort of moves along and it never got boring and it feels really I mean, I hate when people are like, it feels realistic because it doesn't mean anything in terms of like a movie, but just in, just like the dialogue, the sound mixing is really messy. Like you can hear sort of different bits of conversations for different parts of a room um, adds to that feeling of like what he's trying to do is just show all these little parts of life that are like interlocked with each other and that do obviously converge at the end of this rally without which the movie would kind of feel aimless, but it doesn't. So, um, oh, and we should talk about Jeff Goldblum for briefly before we move on. Vitally important cameo film. role in this. Yeah. Yes. In fact, it's not even a cameo. He's in the whole film. He doesn't have any dialogue, so there's a strong possibility he was paid as an extra. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, in one of his very earliest major film roles, he is wearing a Jeff Goldblum outfit. He is genuinely just playing exactly the kind of character you want to see from him, which is like a weirdo um, <laughs> on a tricycle motorbike just driving around. And he's one of these connector characters who you see interacting with various individuals. Like at one point you see that he's um, he's like sleeping in the car park where all the school buses are kept and he's shaving in the window of a school bus like when you're introduced to him he's doing card tricks in a diner by himself like to impress whatever women's going by or just for himself and he's wearing this like fringed jacket and a hat and it's just like jeff goldblum (laughs) he's so great (laughs) oh my god it's has he ever done a bad role i think not no and he, he literally his role is to like drive from place to place where the action is going not like every time but a lot of the time you kind of see him like driving and then it's sort of like the scene will move from one place to the other and just wordlessly 
being in strange places doing and it's strange also th- very realistic because i feel like sometimes when you're in you know that environment you'll see characters like local characters that you yeah. keep seeing without necessarily knowing who they are and he is one of the fixtures that particular month <laughs> yeah with his sequined cowboy hat thing it's great and his Just... giant low-slung tricycle bike <laughs> magnificent oh so good so one of the sort of big things we wanted to talk about with this film was how the music functions in it and how it is and is not a musical. And I thought it was really interesting to watch this so soon after having seen La La Land. Obviously, these movies don't actually have anything to do with each other. So comparing them is kind of just making stuff up. But I don't watch a ton of musicals. We also just watched Singing in the Rain. So we're just like on a little kick here but obviously most of the people who have seen la la land at this point really loved it um but i didn't so it was fascinating to me to watch this because i feel like in a lot of ways although most people probably wouldn't classify this as a musical because all the musical numbers are diegetic in the sense that they're happening within the frame of the movie and they're also very unstagey which we kind of spoke about a bit earlier like they don't You know, they're not, even the ones that are really famous musicians um, in the film, like Haven Hamilton and Barbara Jean, there's no real stagecraft going on because it's 1970s, like, country music. So yeah. it's someone who's just standing on a stage looking, un- like, uncool <laughs> and delivering right. a song, right? And there's not even, like, because in La La Land, you know, one of the most powerful songs is one where it's a solo delivered by Emma Stone, which is why everyone wants her to get an Oscar. And even in this film, like the equivalent to that is Barbara Jean's lip sync song, which is about an abusive relationship and it's a very powerful emotional moment, but it's not delivered like a solo. Yeah. But I think that the way that the songs function in this basically are the way that songs function in a traditional musical where people like dance on the street, right? So if you think about musicals having song numbers that like inform us about character and advance the plot, a lot of the songs on this do that. Like there are certain th- certain numbers that are kind of there to just give like flavor or color, and a lot of the plot advancement isn't that concrete because the plot of the movie is not like an A to B plot so much. But a lot of the songs do tell us a lot about the people who are singing them. Even the sort of Haven Hamilton ones, this sort of terrible America song doesn't give us much about his deep inner psychology, but that tells us a lot about what kind of person he is, right? Yeah. In addition to setting the stage for the movie as a whole. like And his songs are very commercial and insincere, not really in terms of style, but later on he does this uh, really big performance where he's singing a song that's all about sort of, you know, gotta keep going when life's hard, gotta keep working. And it's like, what the fuck do you know? You're literally like the richest person in the whole movie. And he's singing, right. it's this classic thing where he's singing to this audience of regular working class people and they probably really identify with the song and they're like, oh, it's really powerful, it's great, it's really important to me, and it's not important to Haven Hamilton. Except that it made him a bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously the most sort of straightforward example of this would probably be the song I'm Easy, where yeah. he's like... Which hey, also hey. brings together five or six different strands of the film in one scene. Right. So that one's the one that felt most like a musical to me. Yeah, definitely. And has the very concrete effect of getting two characters to sleep together. But proportionally... I think this movie definitely has more music in it than La La Land. Obviously, it's much longer, so, like, time spent for sure. But I think even if you broke it down just percentage-wise, I think it does too. And 
one of the problems I had with La La Land was that I felt like the music was sort of tacked on in a way. Um, I think a lot of the better scenes in that film are not the musical scenes, but rather the scenes where they're kind of having banter together because the two of them are so charming that even if the script isn't written in the best way, they can kind of pull it off because they're fun to watch. Whereas the musical numbers, like they're fine, but they're just kind of there. Not all, some of them are really good, but some of them are kind of just not doing the same work. I don't think as a lot of the musical numbers in this film and you had a really good point about the style of the music in la la land the whole film is all about the two characters passions which were emma stone is acting and playwriting and then for ryan gosling's character is jazz and his whole character is driven by his love of jazz and how it's a dying medium in his opinion and wanting to start a jazz bar but none of the music in the film is jazz <laughs> so the whole thing is like all about jazz and they talk about jazz and they go to jazz bars and the music that is actually performed in the uh, movie is not whereas in this the whole thing is founded on every character's love of country music and everyone going to this place because they all want to be here for country music and be part of the scene and that's why they're using that music even though the music doesn't even sound that great in some sense. <laughs> right. And then I think that sense of the scene is a lot of what holds the movie together. So even if the plot isn't always that plotty, you have this sense of community and this sense of musical community that is very compelling and gives you a sense of context that like, even if you don't know anything about this, I think most people have some idea of community in that sense that we can understand and i think that that's really interesting and compelling and obviously comparing these two films is just a totally fabricated thing like they again they don't have anything to do with each other but it having that sort of in my mind was a really interesting thing when watching it this time because i appreciated the way it was functioning on that level not purely as a drama even though that is what it is and I think that the use of music in that way is really ingenious because there are a ton of musical numbers in this where he's just shooting people singing. And that should be really boring because there isn't any pizzazz. And he'll do things like cut away to people in the audience and have some dialogue or like people backstage. It's not like he literally just has the camera on like Barbara Jean's face the whole time. But there is a lot of that too. And that by all rights should not work in a film but it does work by virtue of the actors being really charismatic even when i mean i think a lot of the music in this movie is really good but some of it definitely isn't but like all the actors are compelling and also altman is just so good that he makes it interesting to watch regardless because kind of at first um kind of for the first maybe half hour of the film I was a little bored during some of the musical numbers. I was just like, I don't really see why this is happening. And then as the film progressed, I kind of, I was thinking back to Gosford Park where there was a lot of time in that film where technically speaking, nothing is happening that's like directly pushing the plot forward. But it's all about making the atmosphere feel more real and the very small pieces of character development that happen in real life that aren't necessarily like a major plot point. Yeah, and... So much of, like, screenwriting rules says every single thing that happens in a movie has to be there to drive the plot forward, which in most cases actually is very good advice. But he, and again, obviously he's working off of another person's script, but by the time he's, you know, a lot of this stuff is not really in a screenplay. Um, and he's so good that he can get away with having stuff that 
is all relevant to what the movie is doing, but isn't directly contributing to a plot thing. And that's a very rare ability. So when you get to watch a movie by someone who can do that, it's really, I think, pleasurable in a very unique way. Um, but we should move to talking about the ending because there's some interesting stuff about the ending. And although we have talked about many things that happen in this film, uh, if you are still listening for some reason and have not seen Nashville, you should definitely stop now um, because there is something that happens at the end that you won't want to hear about. Um, so this is your warning. Turn off our podcast. So do you want to describe what happens at the end of the film briefly? Obviously, the whole film is propelling towards this campaign concert for the third party candidate, who we never actually see on screen. We only yeah. hear him in campaign broadcasts on this campaign truck that's kind of going around town blasting um, all his nonsensical manifestos out. <laughs> and even though the concert is the driving force for all the musicians in the film, none of them really express any interest in him as a candidate or his uh, yeah. or his policies. It's kind of a really entertaining depiction of how the campaign works. So that's probably the most cynical aspect of the film because it's just all these really enthusiastic college teens giving out leaflets and there's this really kind of grody campaign manager guy organising this concert in a really insincere way. Like at one point he promises Hayden Hamilton that he might be considered to run for governor if this guy wins the election. It's like, no, you won't. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> complete nonsense um but so like obviously that's the major kind of point at the end of the film where all these characters are going to meet up and you kind of expect that different characters are going to get a payoff on the stage you're going to wonder what's happening with Suleen Gay the really bad singer what's going to happen if she's in this huge stage and will these characters meet each other for the first time and that kind of thing and what happens is they get up on stage and then this relatively minor character who's barely had a significant role in the film before assassinates Barbara Jean and it's this kind of creepy but not really particularly unsettling quiet guy who we think is a musician who's come to Nashville and he's been staying in a boarding house and throughout the film he's been juxtaposed with this uh, very young um, army veteran who's still wearing his uniform who has basically been stalking Barbara Jean so this army kid has been staking out her hospital bed and uh, at one point he actually goes and sleeps in her room and one of the nurses finds him um, so you, you, like I kind of felt quite on edge about this character and then it turns out that he's actually there because, you know, his mother helped save Barbara Jean from the fire, I think. So he kind of feels connected to her and wants to make sure she's safe. And he's the one who kind of takes down this other guy when he shoots Barbara Jean. But then you've got this amazing scene at the end where it's just chaos at this concert. And um, what happens is this woman who's been in the film a lot as well, but is the kind of comedy character, like at the beginning of the film, she's this attractive woman who is clearly very drunk and wants to make it in Nashville as a country star. So she runs away from her husband. And as the film progresses, you see her more and more getting more drunk and run down and you never actually hear her sing. And then in the final scene, Haven Hamilton just asks anyone to sing on stage. So she just grabs the microphone because she's the only one who kind of <laughs> is stupid slash confident enough to do so. Yeah. And she, yeah. <laughs> and she sings this song called It Don't Worry Me. And it turns out her voice is amazing, which is this really great twist. But it's also such an interesting song choice because, you know, the song is happening because Haven Hamilton wants the crowd to not be panicking. And also it's just his reaction is just that he wants everyone to keep singing because this is America. And, you know, we always live through a tragedy. And then she's just singing this song called It Don't Worry Me, which is just really ironic because it kind of should worry you that someone's just been assassinated in front of hundreds of people at this political event in front of this giant American flag. 
and maybe America in 1975 is not all that great and you should maybe not be singing it don't worry me (laughs) right and I think all this sort of like political stuff that's been bubbling under the surface rises up a little bit in this sequence at the end although it's not explicitly political exactly and it's not as though he's this guy has shot her out of any explicable motive it's not like he shouts something or whatever but directly before he shoots her there's this shot of this enormous american flag which again isn't provided exactly as an explanation but clearly something is going on here right you're supposed to pay attention to and I think the fact that you do also have this character who has been in the military sort of haunting the edges of the movie is really interesting because he's sort of basically stalking this woman. He is stalking her. But you find out that he is quite a benign presence. Like when he, you don't see him speak really at all. And then, or like a tiny little bit, and then he And finally... he's also like broadly ignored by the other characters. Like the only right. time when people pay attention to him, there's like one scene where there's this very tragic character who has a minor role, whose wife is in hospital, an elderly man whose wife dies, and he has some interactions with this young guy, but he just wants to talk about his wife. And then the other person who interacts with him is the BBC journalist who just wants to know if he's been in Vietnam because she's sort of bloodthirsty and weird. And it's like, oh, you right. look like you've been in Vietnam. And it's like, no one... You know, it's just this really interesting kind of portrayal of this silent war veteran who you think is suspicious, and then it turns out it's, his motives are basically pure. Right, and then when he finally does speak at length to this old man in the hospital, he is so, like, sweet and earnest in a way, like, just the way he speaks, like, demeanor-wise is not at all what you expect from the way he's been acting physically. I just mean, like, the way his face looks and stuff as he's been like following this woman around throughout the course of the movie. Um, And then you still sort of see him and he is not the person who was the threat, right? The person who was the threat was this other random guy, but the war is not really addressed at all in the movie, except that this one character is present. Um, But I think the fact that that was the context in which it came out has a huge amount to do with what's going on in this film, just in a sort of unspoken way like that. And then obviously Watergate was two years before this happened or this film uh, was made that this sort of sense of unrest in the country and this guy who's running for office, who is never seen like he, there's this like van that drives around the city with like a, megaphone like speaker system on top of it that's like blaring out him his voice talking about his policies and as the film goes on you get more of a sense of what they are because you hear more of it and it's just total like gibberish nonsense like it's like kicking all all over the place like (laughs) and some of them make sense like taxing the wealthy more right like sure but then there's no coherent ideology right like the taxing with the wealthy more cutting subsidies for farmers kicking all the lawyers out of government like what it doesn't i could go on but it's all very weird and then you have these people like all the people who are involved in this campaign at the higher levels clearly do not care about this at all they don't discuss any of the content they're just organizing this thing and the musicians are doing it purely out of self-interest or because they've been forced to the only person who really comments on anything remotely resembling the ideology of this candidate is barbara jean's husband slash manager who's just really vociferously repeating that he doesn't want to endorse any kind of political 
anything and he wants to make sure there's not actually any you're not going to have the campaign slogan behind her it's just going to be a performance and it's like what do you think the point of this event is then you idiot right (laughs) and it's clear that the people who are at this event are there to see the people yeah they have like no interest in this candidate and you do kind of get this sense of this diseased system right and historically it's sandwiched about 10 years on either side between jfk and john lennon's assassination there's a like long quote from Altman on the Wikipedia page of this that like people were calling him up at like journalists were calling him up after John Lennon was assassinated, asking him if he felt responsible because of this movie. And he was like, no, like, I do not feel responsible. That's so weird. That's like, so weird. Because <laughs> this was the, this was oh, the God. you know. That's really odd. That. And also, there... like, I mean, do you think he was even expecting the first phone call? Would you be surprised or not surprised? Like, oh, you know, it's a... God only I mean, I can't imagine. (laughs) Um, But there is a conversation in the movie about JFK and RFK with the Haven Hamilton's wife, who is, like, obsessed with both of them. Yeah, it's like this 50-year-old woman who is a full-on Kennedy fangirl and is tearing up while reciting, like, the statistics of how many votes they've won and lost in Tennessee. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Like... But I think the fact that that scene is in the movie, obviously it's foreshadowing the fact that there's going to be an assassination at the end. But it's also a really interesting little detail that this is what these people, or at least this person, is focused on. Like, she's still so upset about this. And I was thinking watching it, like, okay, so JFK being assassinated was like 12 years before this. And RFK was only seven. And we think of that stuff as being so far in the past. I mean, at least people our age, that was a long time ago, way before we were born. But that was really soon before this happened. And that was such a destabilizing thing, along with so many other things that were going on. And the sense of the country being on unstable territory, I think really underpins this movie, which is really fascinating because what the movie is actually about is all these people in the country music scene in Nashville. Like that has nothing to do with anything, but it's kind of perfect because country music is like the most American form. Yeah. And it also makes me really curious about what media there is right now. That's equivalent to our current situation. Right. Yeah. Because, like, occasionally I'll see something where I'm like, this really resonates with me spiritually as someone who lives in the end times, but I can't exactly pinpoint what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. But it is just, I feel like there's the sort of level of not wanting to engage with stuff and then having to engage with it at the end. But then they still won't do it because they have this song, which is incredibly powerful and moving, but not exactly, like, it both is and isn't cathartic like that sounds very paradoxical and i don't really know how to describe it unless you have yeah seen, i mean it's an anthem like, to not processing pain right it's right. A really, it's a powerful emotional anthem delivered by a broadway singer but like the message is a huge mess <laughs> right <laughs> intentionally and and the way it's shot like you see these people who are all kind of in shock Stunned. yeah so the movie ends and you feel bad but the music is very powerful. That's my favorite song in the movie. And so you're left with this very disoriented sense of what has happened, which I think is exactly what he was trying to do. And I mean, I think at some point in the long future of our podcast, we'll end up doing something about how pop culture is failing 
to process school shootings yes. because that's kind of currently our equivalent constantly prevalent everywhere but pop culture isn't really dealing with it sufficiently i mean that's a huge one and that's something i think about a lot but i feel like there's a lot of current political stuff that there's a big resistance to dealing with which is really unfortunate because that's how culture deals with things and sort of like metabolizes them yeah because we've been making movies that aren't about 9-11 but are actually about 9-11 for 15 years now and a lot of them are really racist so (laughs) (laughs) but like you're finally starting to get more novels kind of about that even if they're not explicitly about that in a more productive way i think i mean like there were definitely some closer to the time but it feels like there's been more of a, a like a surge of material like that at least to me maybe i have a distorted perspective of this but that's a really positive thing but there's just like the shooting thing and like gun violence in general but school shootings in particular it seems like there's a big lack of energy focus there but also just like the political situation i don't just mean the last six months but like years and years and years that has not no one wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole because it's too fucked up (laughs) like and now here we are not this is anyone's fault but like it's just it just gets worse and worse and someone should probably do something about it at some point for people who enjoy being miserable Look back a few weeks and listen to our Children of Men podcast. Yes! (laughs) The sign of both of us having a nervous breakdown in unison. As we will be for the next two weeks and the indefinite future. Great times. Yes. Well, next week's podcast, seeing as I think we've basically wrapped up this one. What are we doing next week? Uh, We're doing a Halloween episode next week and we're doing a poll. It's going to be one of three movies. I think it's going to be Carrie. It looks like Carrie is winning. We're going to do a classic horror movie. It's either going to be Carrie the Exorcist or Suspiria, but Carrie looks like it's winning by a pretty wide margin. So we're probably going to be talking about Carrie next week. But you yeah. can check... So this poll closes on Tuesday morning. You can check Twitter to see the outcome. But this will be very interesting because I have seen like two horror movies ever in my life. Yes. And one, of the, one of the rare areas where I've seen slightly more than Morgan, even though I'm terrified of literally everything. So I have <laughs> not seen, I've not seen Carrie either and I've not seen The Exorcist. So yeah. whatever we have here... It's going to be a classic that most of you will probably be at least somewhat familiar with. We're going to scare the crap out of each other because uh, we're wusses. So (laughs) good. Good times. So thank you for listening. As ever, if you enjoyed this, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. Otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, at overinvestedpod on Twitter, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.